Well, good morning. Good to be with you this morning. That was for all our kids and and uh, kids at heart in our in our congregation today. It's good to be with you this morning, and we will be in First Corinthians. But before we go there, just let me invite you at this time, if you'd like your little ones to be in a part of an age-appropriate service up through grade six, four years old, right, Amy, up through grade six, and so you can be dismissed at this time. And I will tell you, as I've mentioned over the last several weeks, that the message series we're in will be PG. Um, it is the nature of the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians particularly, in this portion where we are, uh, that has some more mature topics, which we will talk about. We will not uh, spend lots of time talking about specifics to exacerbate our own imaginations, but um, we will be in things that are mature. So if you have 7th and above in here, they should be more than sufficiently able in uh, maturity to handle that because of probably the talks you've had with them. 1 Corinthians 6. Before I, I get into our message time together, I want to make note uh, a little bit of, uh, on what Jim mentioned. I think it's appropriate for us to say something. I, what's interesting, I think, is we've gone uh, through this passage of Scripture and with the radio ministry, two things really that are in my mind. As, as we think about the outreach that we have through the radio here, uh, both in Lynchburg and uh, almost down to Richmond and all the way up through Roanoke, we are currently teaching through the book of Romans, chapter 1, actually we're in verse 19. And I think it's appropriate, and the Lord kind of worked that out because we cycled that back around in order to make room for other studies to be completed and, and, and um, produced. And so I think that's it's good for, for believers to be encouraged in that respect, to understand uh, the way of the world uh, uh, necessarily and specifically the way of the world for the United States. Uh, we're no different. Nations trend left, and that is really the way that it's going to go as we think about the kingdom, the current temporary kingdom ruled by the prince of the power of the air, in which we are really invaders or in hostile territory, occupiers, if you will, uh, in the time that we have before the Lord comes back, we understand that that's the way the things will go. Um, we also understand, though, that there are some questions, I think, that need to be answered. And I just looked at just one social media outlet yesterday, Facebook, a little bit of Twitter. I, there's two questions, really, that came up with believers, and I want to mention them quickly before we get into our message. And you'll see how the message today will tie together with the importance of of what we should take away from, from the Supreme Court's decision. Uh, first of all, just in general, uh, the, the true Supreme Court of the world, of the universe, has already determined the, the correct outcome for this, and he's already said what it is. And we're simply those who follow what he says and understand what he says. But two questions, really. Uh, is it right? Is it right for two uh, people of the same gender to marry uh, in light of Scripture? For the believer, the answer is no, it's not. Um, scripture is very clear about that, and we're, I'm going to give you a couple of passages. Second one is, is more nebulous, and as I looked at the um, statistics, of course, of, of those who think that two of the same gender should be able to marry, 60% supposedly of, United, uh, of Americans say that it should be. Well, if you think that 80% self-identify as believers, there seems to be some conflict there, either in their understanding of what the Scripture says or that they're not necessarily a believer. But I would say that the question is, should it be legal? Um, and that's the question many believers struggle with, and the answer to that is also no. Now, I'll give you a couple of ways that we can, we can go about that. Turn to Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18. And I think that even though this will take away from time in the message, uh, I can cut that down a little bit and we'll, we'll pick up next week. Isaiah 5, verse 18. There won't be a slide on the back uh, for that, so you'll just have to turn with me. I think there are important passages to look at to help you kind of firm these things up in your mind and understand that uh, God's laws are for everybody. Uh, just recently, my wife and I had a conversation with a student on Facebook 
who made the, the proclamation that Christianity and the Christian's laws are only for the Christian, and that if you're not a Christian, it really doesn't matter. Well, it shows us a, a, a severe lack of understanding about just the laws of the universe that are set up by the same lawgiver, both physical and moral. Um, and so we talked to him about that, to which he was not open to those responses. Not surprising, but at least we planted the correct seed and maybe another thought about how that perhaps should wash out. But Isaiah chapter five, verse 18, and here, you know, here's the prophet 700 years before Christ, and he is speaking, uh, the Lord is speaking through him, and here's what he says. Of course, he's directed it to Israel, but you'll see the nations pulled into the passage, both this one and the next two I'm going to turn you to. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 18, it says this, uh, Woe to those who drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood and sin as if with cart ropes. Well, anytime the scripture says, woe, that should get your attention. Anytime the scripture says, uh, woe to you, and it's the Lord speaking to men, that's a serious situation. Woe to those who uh, drag iniquity with the cords of falsehood. In other words, uh, they try to make sin look good by telling a lie about it. And of course, I don't have to make an illustration of how this has all come to pass. As we think about, is it right? No. And should it be legal? No. Um, and then verse 19, it says, who say, uh, let him make speed, let him hasten his work, that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know of it. In other words, I mean, really, it's just an ignorance of, of the Lord, ignorance of the perception of his work, and saying, hey, just kind of show us if we're wrong. I mean, if we're not wrong, I mean, obviously, we figured you out, God, and love is better than anything else, and isn't it better to love than to hate and whatever. It just basically, Lord, come show us yourself. I mean, show us that you're at work. Show us something about you. Just, uh, just uh, faithlessness crying out in mockery. Now, look at verse 20. Here's another woe. What are those who call evil good and good evil and substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter? Now, if that doesn't describe what we've just got through watching, I don't know what does. Um, substituting God's plan for marriage, a, a man and a woman, for uh, the evil one's plan for marriage uh, and to corrupt all of those things. And then it says, verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. And I guess our White House, shamefully bathed in a rainbow light, um, probably describes that as well as anything else for me. Not only does our president, is not, as our president, not a believer and no one was ever fooled to thinking that he was, not only does he not understand the basic laws of the universe, both physical and moral, uh, that apply to everybody equally, he wants to rub our nose in it as well and, and show the world how foolish we are. And so verse 22 says, woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink and who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right. And just woe in general for foolishness, woe in general for dis disregarding God's law, woe in general for all those things. Uh, he says then in verse 24, therefore as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into the flame, so their root will become like rot and their blossom blow away as dust. For they rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Once again, some immutable laws of the universe, both physical and moral, same lawgiver, uh, break physical laws. You're certainly going to uh, feel the consequences of, of perhaps death, uh, maybe injury, um, loss, whatever. Um, break the moral laws of the universe, same lawgiver, death, injury, loss, punishment, wrath. Those laws are immutable. They were given by the same lawgiver. We do our best to, to build things and to uh, create things that, uh, that align with the laws of the universe so that we, physical laws of the universe, so we protect life and we keep people safe and, 
and engineers design cars so that they understand uh, the laws of gravity and of physics and, and of momentum and all the things. We create things to help uh, keep people safe and understand we have to function inside those laws. You jump off a building, gravity's taking over. Regardless of what you may believe about it, you're going down. Um, and base jumpers too, and we see plenty of them colliding with other things. You're not gonna be able to thwart the laws, the physical laws of the universe anymore. They can, you can thwart the moral laws of the universe. And the, the bottom line is this, and in 1 John 5, I'd like you to turn to Leviticus 18. It'll take you a little longer to get there. Leviticus 18, 22. Look there quickly if you would. Uh, again, I'll just, and this pulls in all the nations, not just Israel, that we understand all of us are under the law of God. All of us have to function and give account, regardless of whether you're one who's redeemed and understand the law of God and the one who he has given to take the penalty for our sin and our breaking of his law. Uh, regardless of which side you're on, the law applies to you. First John 5, 2, though, is you're turning to Leviticus 18. Um, remember, and we've said this numerous times, the laws that God give are not to create a hostile environment for us. They're not, crea they're not created uh, to, to cause the earth to be a place where all the fun is stifled and, and we just have to walk around like a bunch of zombies uh, hoping for uh, something better at some point. You know, first John... John says this, by this we know that we, love, uh, that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. But verse 3 is the thing. Um, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Here's the important part. His commandments are not, what's the last word, do you remember? Burdensome. His commandments are not burdensome, are they? They were created for men's good. They were created for uh, the fullness of life. You know, Jesus himself in John 10, 10, I've come that they might have life and have it to the abundance. I mean, the Lord desires for his people to flourish. He gave laws that gave boundaries for he knew inside those, uh, that construct that he'd made, that's where the sweetest life is found and that's where the best life is found and, and uh, the, the life that will produce uh, joy and happiness and all those things. Leviticus 18.22. And here it just becomes very straightforward and once again, sensitive subject, but I think that you, uh, if, you're, if you're a seventh grader or above, you understand this. Uh, verse 22 says this, just very straightforward, okay? It says, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. It's just straight. I mean, it's not, you know, well, what are we talking about here? I mean, we don't have to figure that out. We don't have to scratch our head and say, what does that mean exactly? Verse 24 says, uh, do not defile yourself by any of these things. Now, here's the important part, okay, um, that I want to get across to you. For by all these, the nations which I am casting out before you, so he's speaking to Israel, now, they're inheriting the land, but he's talking about nations then that we would understand didn't have God's law. But that doesn't mean they were without God's law. It just means they didn't have it given in a written form. They didn't have the prophets, but they understood uh, what God required. So otherwise, it would be very unjust of God, wouldn't it, to say, hey, you're out because, I mean, you didn't know what I expected, but you didn't do what I wanted, and so goodbye. And so we understand God's justice in that respect. Uh, and so he says this, he says, by this, by these, all the nations, by what? Well, that abomination we just read, and a whole bunch of other ones I don't want to get into today. Um, by this, uh, all the nations which I'm casting out before you have become defiled. They've done these things. They've defiled themselves. So God's law, uh, as, it, as it's spelled out for us here, applied to them as well, just like it still does. For the land, verse 25, for the land has become defiled, therefore I have brought its punishment upon it, so the land has spewed out its inhabitants. But as for you, you're to keep my statutes, my judgments, and shall not do any of these abominations, neither the native, nor the alien, nor one who sojourns with among you. Verse 27. For the men of the land who have been before you have done all these abominations, and the land has become defiled. So he says that two times. It's very important that we understand that the Lord sees these actions, defiles the land, wherever it is, wherever they've been living, they do these things, and uh, the Lord is not pleased with that, and he spews them out 
and Israel is going to take over that land. Now look at verse 28, so that, that the land will not spew you out, so don't do them, should you defile it as it has spewed out the nation which had been before you. For whoever does any of these abominations, those persons who do so shall be cut off from among their people. Thus, verse 30, you are to keep my charge that you do not practice any of the abominable customs which have been practiced before you so as not to defile yourselves with them, for I am the Lord your God. And really, it just takes in a big swath of country there, doesn't it? I mean, just it says, Israel, listen, you know my law, and I don't want you to do what the nations did before, but they did. They broke my law. They broke the requirements that I had set. They understood the boundaries of human relationships, and they didn't do them. And they sacrificed their children to Molech and to Shemash, and they did all these other awful things, and the land became defiled, and so I'm spewing them out. But I think the point that I want to make is that God's law applies to everybody. It's not just for Christians. Um, you know, Christianity, uh, uh, I, we understand, we come up under the Lord's law because we desire to obey it, because the Lord has made us new and made us alive, and uh, Spirit is with us, in us, and we desire very much to obey the, Lord, the Lord's law. But regardless of wherever you stand there, if you've rejected the Lord and the knowledge of it, or you embrace it, the law still stands, and it's still good for everybody, okay? Now, if you, just a couple of things as you think about that, and, and as we move into our passage that I'm going to teach on today, Jesus is going to give the same dialogue that I suggest and have been suggesting all along that we use, okay, when we talk about these things, all right? We don't have to get in an argument about isn't love better and whatever. We can just, you know, isn't it okay for us to modify this, this uh, definition and those types of things. We, we can avoid all of that stuff. But just a couple of things to, just to provoke your thought a little bit. Um, Colossians 4.2, this is something we've, I've quoted to you many times. Devote yourselves to prayer. Keep alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. Praying at the same time for us as well, Paul says, that God will open up for us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been in prison. And then in verse um, 4, he says, that, it may, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. And then he says to them, conduct yourselves with wisdom towards outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace as though seasoned with salt so that you may know how you should respond to each person. So I say that to say to you, that there is opportunity for dialogue on a regular basis about these things. And you should, according to Paul's command, be prepared. And I'm going to give you a couple of things that you can understand as we get into our message series today that can help you respond in a way that's with grace, seasoned with salt, that you can understand how to answer each one. And I want to remind you that it is an opportunity that you're going to have. And we live in a uh, government, a representative type of government, which allows us to have some say, and we should have some say, in what's going on. Matthew 5.13, though, here it is. In fact, you can turn there. Matthew 5.13. We're going to be in Matthew today anyway, so just go ahead and flip to Matthew 5.13. Much opportunity for this to happen. Now, we know where Jesus is guiding us here as it relates to the gospel and those that we interact with, but in a representative form of government, we certainly have opportunity to be more of this than perhaps others in other governments at other times in the history of the world have had opportunity. So look at Matthew 5.13. As Jesus speaks to his disciples, he says this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You're a preservative, in other words. You, it's, a needful, uh, element, it's a needful mineral that is here on the earth for a specific purpose, and Christians then are equated to that in this illustration as those that are preservative. Okay, so they have that opportunity, they have that responsibility, you are the salt of the earth, and so you should be working in a preservative manner, okay? And then, um, verse 14, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone uh, light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all those who are in the house. In verse 16, let your light shine before men 
in such a way that they may see your good work and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus said this, as he talks about being salt and being light, he says this, look at verse 17. Do you not think, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets? I didn't come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is completed, accomplished. Verse 19, whoever then in all is the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I, I'll just, I'll just uh, move on into our message topic by saying this to you, beloved. You're salt and light. You have great opportunity, as we went through Romans 13, to influence those uh, the government officials that we have around us, and you should be saying so and doing so, both by your light uh, in your lifestyle choice and what you say, because you have obligation to be prepared in Colossians 4 to do just that. And I will say to you this, I think that there's going to be a large margin of people who call themselves believers and perhaps are believers who fall into that last category, annulling one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same. Even the least of the commandments the Lord has made that we understand are universal, annulling them or making them small or making them not important, is a significant error on our part, okay? So I don't think the rhetoric should be toned down at all. I think that the rhetoric should be at the level it should have been to begin with, that you should be salt and light, speaking clearly the laws of God which apply to everyone. And I don't think that at any point we should minimize the teaching or instruction that needs to go into that conversation that you'll have with people over this type of thing, okay? You don't wanna be one of those called the least in the kingdom of heaven. You don't wanna work and do the things you've done on earth and be promoted to heaven at some point, and for the Lord to say, yes, but these commands, particularly that you ignored, were significant. That's not a good thing, okay? So at some point, we know there's accountability there. The Lord brings us onto the Bema Seat Judgment, and we understand that uh, we build either with wood, hay, and stubble, or gold, silver, and costly stone. And I encourage you to continue and not be discouraged, understanding a temporary kingdom here set up under the prince of the power of the air, which is operating, and we are here as invaders, if you will. We're here as occupiers. We're aliens and strangers in a strange land, but we're still supposed to be salt and light. We're still supposed to be studying how we can answer each one uh, full of grace seasoned with salt. God's laws are universal. They apply to everyone. Physical laws, moral laws, everybody's under them. Should, uh, should two of the same gender be able to marry? No. Uh, should it be legal for them to do it? No. Should you be saying that? Yes. Because that's what God says, and God's laws are not, and God's commands are not burdensome. They're for men's good, okay? Now, I'll say that and give you some, some food for thought. Now, if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we'll go as far as we can go in the time remaining. And I think that you'll find that these complement each other. Understand the previous comments are ones that, uh, as I prayed about what I should say, as we understood what the, um, what the Supreme Court came up with, uh, those are the things that came to my mind. I think those are the questions that I noticed that seemed to be most, um, most prevalent, especially among believers. Uh, should two people get married uh, who are the same gender? No. Should it be legal? And the answer is no. And I think we can make that clear from the passages that we pulled up. Okay? Now, we are in our fourth stop in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And as we closed out our time last time, we ended with our final nine principles of purity that Paul relayed to the church. We won't go back over them, but he gave them to the church in order to prepare them for his answer to their questions, which really begin in chapter 7. So the church in Corinth had a number of questions concerning marriage and singleness and divorce and all the kinds of things that are, or things that brand new believers would uh, want to bring to Paul. Uh, they're in all kinds of situations and circumstances, which we'll talk about 
next week and the week after, perhaps some of the circumstances that could have been true in Corinth, some of the habits we certainly have seen as we looked at the first part of chapter 6, and singleness and purity, and as we understand the, the call of Dionysius and all the, uh, the priestesses and all the things that went on there, we understand some of the things that were going on. In chapter 5, we understood that there was immorality right in the church. Uh, two people who should never have been married or, li- or together, living together, were doing that. So Paul is addressing how the culture is salting the church. He's still going to do that. And so in, in the first part of chapter, or last part of chapter 6, we dealt with the principles of purity that deal with everything and will c- poison any relationship, whether it's a singleness, whether it's married, whatever it happens to be, uh, an inability to get control of your own uh, vessel, as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 says, uh, will lead to problems no matter what situation you're in. So Paul wanted to deal with the basic principles of purity before he moved on. Now, as we get to you know, 612, really through the end of chapter 7, Paul is dealing with the use of the body in singleness and marriage, and he's going to deal with errors in the church regarding immorality and marriage and divorce. And so God's plan for a healthy church, Paul brings these things to bear because these are the next things uh, on the list that he needs to accomplish with them in, in the form of teaching. So we're going to begin our, our in-depth look at chapter 7 today, and over the next several weeks we're going to look at a number of topics and really introduce this section with some contextual background because Paul is going to write this chapter 7 to the church assuming some knowledge. He, in other words, he, he's, they have some questions, he's going to write back answers, but it assumes some knowledge that he's already given them in 18 months as their pastor. And what I want to make sure that we do, as we did when we talked about uh, material things, we talked about money, I didn't just want to talk about what you're supposed to do with your money now. I wanted to talk about where it all came from from the beginning and how we understand God looks at it and who owns all of it and all of that. And so I want to do the same here. And I want to look at singleness. I want to look at divorce. I want to look at marriage. Uh, in other passages of Scripture, today we'll be in the New Testament, Jesus is teaching. Uh, next week we're going to be in the Old Testament and see the Lord's teaching to his people there. And so we can really lay a groundwork contextually so that when we move into 1 Corinthians 7, we have in our back of our mind the things that perhaps the church in Corinth also knew in the back of their mind. So Paul gives commands, but they're based on other teaching, teachings of Jesus, teachings from the Old Testament. So I want to look at those things. And so that'll be encouraging to us, I think, as we do that. Now, um, let's get started. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 7. And I was going to read all 40 verses. I may cut off a little ways in because we won't get anywhere near that far if you're familiar with how we teach here, verse by verse, comparing Scripture with Scripture, we'll take our time. But look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, all right? And we'll read perhaps to, we'll read verse 16, all right? So stick with me if you would. I'm going to read from the New American Standard. You can read from the passage, uh, the Bible that you study and memorize, and I'll give you some verse cues we can stay together. Okay, verse 1 of chapter 7. Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Verse 2, But because of immoralities, let each man, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. Verse 3, The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband. Verse 4, The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Verse 5, Stop depriving one another, except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Verse 6. But this I say by way of concession, not of command. Verse 7. Yet I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. But I say to the unmarried and to the widow, verse 8, 
It's good for them if they remain even as I. Verse 9, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Verse 10, for to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. Verse 12, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. Verse 13, and a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. Verse 14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified through the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through the believing husband for otherwise your children are unclean. But now they are holy. Verse 15, yet if the unbelieving leaves, let him leave. The brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. Verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Look, verse 17, I'll go a little bit further because I think it's important. Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, in this manner let him walk, and so I direct in all the churches. Verse 18, was a man called when he was already circumcised? He is not to become uncircumcised. He's uh, has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised. Verse 19, circumcision is nothing. Uncircumcision is nothing. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Each man must remain in that condition in which he was called. Were you, were you called while a slave? Do not worry about it, but you are able to become free. Rather do that. Verse 22, for, uh, the Lord, for he is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he who was called while free is the Lord's slave. Verse 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brethren, verse 24, each one is to remain with God in that condition in which he was called. Then he moves on. He's going to talk about, he's going to talk to unmarried. He's going to talk to widows. He's going to talk to those who've never been married. And so you can kind of see that there's some background there that isn't there in Paul's teaching. He's just giving direct commands to people and saying, okay, if this is your situation, if you're, if you're married to an unsaved person and you, you became a believer, what do I do? And you can imagine in this church, you've got brand new believers, they're coming in, uh, coming to faith, getting delivered out of idolatry, whatever it is, and they're coming into the church and they're married to an unsaved person. They're seeing all these other redeemed persons and they're thinking, well, you know, the Lord doesn't want me to stick with this loser. I mean, this guy won't uh, come to faith. I'm, I'm going to dump him and I'm going to find somebody who's, uh, who's redeemed. I'm going to get married to them and everything's going to be great. We'll be able to, you know, serve the Lord together or whatever and, and vice versa. And lots of other questions times 10. And so Paul's taking some time and he's addressing some of these things and giving very broad commands to them. But they're based on very important principles that are found in the Word of God. And that's what we're going to look at today. So Paul talks about all that, and we've seen so clearly, you know, again, in the, in the last few months, the Word of God touches every dimension of living, and it's so appropriate, I guess, for today as well, as we even think of what we learned this week, and really faithfully reading the Word of God, uh, faithfully, day by day, verse by verse, working your way through, as I've explained to you over and over again, uh, that's going to change your entire life, and I think really, as we think about the whole section of society that, uh, who would call themselves or identify themselves as believers, and then thought what happened this week was okay, that's really a problem because what has happened is, a, is a, an obvious disregard for what the Lord has said in his word over and over again and a, and a misunderstanding of, of the few passages, perhaps, that they have looked at. And so it's important. It's going to change your life. Faithfully reading the word of God every day, working it through year by year, is very, very important. And it, in the word, and this is what's important, in the word, the, Lord, the Lord's clear teaching uh, is there whenever we need clear teaching. You shall not do this, don't do this, do this, 
avoid these things, you know, set aside these things, put aside all the, uh, the works of darkness, take yourself out of those circles, you know, beware of wherever friends you may be evolving yourself with, they may uh, corrupt your lifestyle, all those kinds of things, we see those, and where we understand clear teaching, it's very clear, and where scriptures leave specific things unsaid, it provides a foundation which the Holy Spirit that dwells inside of you, if been born again, can use to apply an express kind of leading in your life. And so that's why it's so important to understand that you read through the Bible, understand you see Lord, the Lord interacting with people, different circumstances, different people, different time periods, and you see how that works and what the Lord does and what he expects, and we understand and begin to bring our life in line there. So uh, where uh, you know the Word of God, the Holy Spirit will apply that in your life. You can make some clear judgments, even though the Lord's not clear, perhaps, exactly on some specific issue. So God's word is a tremendous treasure, and we're going to see that again today. We have the ability to navigate through life uh, with a GPS really provided by the book, a place where we can find out what we need to know, an answer book, if you will. And as the joke goes, which really is no joke, billboards along the highway of the United States, did I mention uh, there would be a test, says God. And there will be, and it's important that we, and perhaps some of the test is right now, as you understand what it says and are able to apply that in wisdom. Now, some of the subjects the Bible speaks clearly on are the subjects of singleness and marriage and divorce. And marriage and divorce and singleness are very important subjects in today's culture. And what I would like to do over the next several weeks is take the time to lay a foundation of God's instructions on these things so we can understand his clear teaching. And Paul's going to refer to these basic instructions as he answers the questions posed to him from the church. So when we get to our passage, the answers Paul gives will be confirmed by what we understand from the rest of Scripture, particularly today as we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19. So I'd like you to look there, Matthew 19. And this survey, I think, will be very beneficial to us, even though, uh, you know, it is um, laying a foundation, the, the uh the survey will be beneficial in its own right, apart from the understanding it's going to give uh, the context of the Corinthian church. So Matthew 19, verse 1, Jesus is teaching on marriage and divorce, so we can begin to get our footing here in 1 Corinthians. And it, um, it's going to give some answers to some other things, not just to marriage and divorce. And I think you're going to see how this works as we work through it. Now, Matthew 9, chapter 19, verse 1. Uh, read there in your copy of God's word with me. Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Verse 2, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now, verse 1 starts out by saying, now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings. And this is an important landmark for us from Matthew. It's a very interesting expression. It refers to teaching found in chapter 18, when, starting in verse seven, chapter 17 on into 18, when Jesus taught on humility of a believer and childlikeness of the faith of a believer. He begins to teach them uh, with a little child on his lap, and he begins to make references and illustrations as the child is sitting there. And he moves to the parable of the lost sheep, and then to the offended brother, and then, he, he, then a tremendous instruction about forgiveness. You've been forgiven much greater debt, and so you can forgive each other. And so he makes these comments as a child sitting on his lap, and, and chapter 18 was a lesson. It was a time of teaching on related topics or ideas. It was a sermon, if you will, and throughout the book of Matthew, there are, there are several of these lessons. Jesus was in a home in Capernaum in Matthew 17, 24. He has a child on his lap. He taught these truths. He relates them to how a child behaves, and so people were able to understand uh, those teachings as a result of Jesus's where he was at that point. So you see the words, and when he finished these sayings, know that's an interesting statement because it comes up several times in the book of Matthew and always at the end of important lessons. And it's just one of those landmarks Matthew uses to bring to our notice that the Lord's concluded a very important lesson time beginning in chapter 17, going through chapter 18 on faith and taxes, humility, those uh, who cause people to stumble and all the things that we just talked about. Now, 
Jesus finishes that very important teaching time, and our passage says, Now it came to pass, see where I am in Matthew 19, Now it came to pass, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. Now, just to give some context there, the land of Palestine is roughly split down the middle, north to south, by the river Jordan. You know this, and we've seen this over and over on maps that we've put up. Now, it begins at the foot of Mount Hermon. Uh, the river flows 104 miles south through the, uh, through the Sea of Galilee, ends in the Dead Sea. Galilee to the north, more rural area. Uh, Judea to the south, more occupied area. Jesus is leaving Galilee on his journey to the cross, but instead of going straight down to Jerusalem, he crosses over the Jordan, he goes south on the eastern side of the Jordan, down past Jericho, and then eventually crosses back over the Jordan and comes up to Jerusalem. Now he goes to this region beyond, or the word Paran in the Greek language, simply referring to the land beyond the Jordan River. Uh, we have left the Galilee ministry in chapter 19 and 20, Jesus ministers in the area of Perea. Now, it's a rather heavily Jewish populated area, under the control of Herod Antipas, and that name probably sounds familiar to you. He's the one who had John the Baptist beheaded. It was the area used for travel for the Jews, living to the north, traveling down to Jerusalem for special holidays. They came this way because if they went straight south, they would have to cross through the area of Samaria. And between the Jews and the Samaritans, there was enmity, and the Jews thought if they went through that area, they would be defiled. And so this... Uh, Time period is approaching the Passover time. Many Jews are going this way, heading down for Passover. They're crossing over the Jordan, heading through the area of Perea. So he could minister to the inhabitants of Perea and those traveling to Jerusalem as well. And so our passage says in verse 2, And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. Now, the same thing happened when he was in Galilee in Matthew 4, 25. The healings he did showed his love and compassion. They were also the indicating marks of his messianic position. He confirmed he was God by authoritative teaching and by his miracles and his marvelous power showed in his miracles he declared who he was. He did this in Galilee. He did the same thing here in Perea. Now, even though he's traveling to his death, he still is devoted to the needs of the people, and so he's making sure that they're taken care of. And the teaching of God's truth and confirming that he's the Messiah are all part of what he's about as he heads to his death. Now, this is the final section of Matthew's gospel. He's presented as a king, rejected by Israel. Jesus is surrounded by, his, uh, by the crowds. Jesus is teaching his disciples one lesson after another so they can carry on when he's gone. And he's going to bring it to their mind when he is gone so they can write it all down and they can do those things. And all the while, too, the Pharisees are following along after him, testing him, questioning him, trying to place doubt in the hearts of the people. So while all these are here in the midst of all he's doing, we move on to verse 3. This ties us right to our topic. Look at verse 3, if you would, in your copy of God's Word. The Pharisees also came to him testing him and saying to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Let's pause right there. Now, the Pharisees were determined in their efforts to plot against Jesus. Uh, they were his enemies. Uh, they wouldn't leave him alone. And these guys are included in Scripture, I think, so that we can know what not to be like. Okay? These are the guys we love to hate. They're included here numerous times. Uh, it's so that you can see uh, what they look like. Um, you know, worrying about outside not the inside, know, know what the word says, but make no internal application. You become like a Pharisee. Be more concerned about personal preferences than loving your brother. Criticize often, become jealous when you're not in charge. Be more concerned about appearances than attitude. Those attitudes are still around today, of course, in the church, and that becomes very pharisaical as you think about it. But they're still around. These are the guys, though, that we're not supposed to be like, but they were real people following Jesus around, and they, these are the guys we love to hate. We find them in chapter 3, 5, 9, 12. They're in chapter 16. Here they are again in chapter 19. 
One thing about the Pharisees, they keep turning up, they're resolute. Now, verse 3, it says, the Pharisees also came to him, testing him. Obviously, he wanted them, uh, they wanted him to fail the test, to give him a test he couldn't pass for one of two reasons, and they're on the screen behind me. One, they wanted to discredit him. Uh, they would harm his reputation, he'd lose popularity. Number two, uh, they wanted him dead. Either one would accomplish the same end, or at least in their mind. And so those thoughts were in their mind, so they have a test. And it's not just an arbitrary test, an arbitrary question. It's planned, it's thoughtful, it's calculated. Now look at verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, saying to him, is it lawful, that is the divine law, is it God's law, within God's law, for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? That's the question. It seems simple enough as you see it on the outside. The question, though, is thought out. It's been crafted to trip up Jesus and bring about his discrediting, ultimately, his death. Now, you know that divorce, as we've talked about this over and over again, was a contested issue among the Jews. And you know it had two opposing schools of thought. Much like today, uh, the two opposing schools of thought during Jesus' time, one group said that divorce was never okay. The other group said that divorce was okay for any reason. We have basically that same approach in Christianity today. Some who will say no divorce for anybody for any time for any reason, and others would say, hey, just do whatever you want and God will forgive you. And we said basically have the same, the same polls on both sides now. But this is where it was in Jesus' time. And of course, the most popular view of the people was the second view. It was especially popular among people who wanted to get a divorce, obviously. So the second view accommodates sin. It's going to play in whatever circumstance you put it. That's why it's so popular. Now, according to the second view, you can divorce your wife for spoiling your dinner or walking out in the open with her head uncovered or talking with men in the streets or, or arguing with you or even if you found someone prettier because at that point she'd become unclean in your eyes. And, and that was the way, the, the view of the Pharisees, uh, it's the way that they championed and it was no secret to them that Jesus didn't teach this way. In fact, he'd already, con he'd already confronted them on this whole thing in Matthew chapter 5. Jesus' first discourse or lesson recorded in Matthew uh, really directed towards the people and his disciples, but really in an indirect way uh, attacking the teachings of the Pharisees. In Matthew 5 verse 27, he says this, you have heard that it was said to those of old, in other words, that statement relates to the teachers before and the teachers of the day, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And then verse 31, he says, furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Verse 32, but I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now we'll just stop right there, because Jesus has already taken them to task on this issue. He's talking to his disciples, the people who are following him, but he's also talking indirectly to the Pharisees. Listen, you've heard it taught to you, and so he's taking them to task. They've said to you, but I say, Jesus says. Now the Pharisees thought they didn't commit adultery. They were so pious, and, and Jesus is, in his comments here basically says to them, you say you don't commit adultery. Jesus says, I say you commit adultery everywhere. How do you do that? Well, you get, divorced, you get divorced without cause. And when you do that, you cause the one who is married to you to commit adultery and when, when they remarry. And the one who marries them commits adultery. And you become an adulterer when you remarry. And the one who marries you commits adultery. So not only do you commit adultery, you commit it everywhere. And you propagate it. And so that's what happens, Jesus tells them here in Matthew 5, when you have a divorce without cause. So... They're coming to question him, but they already know Jesus' teaching on the subject. He'd made it very clear. Same type of teaching is recorded for us in Luke 16, 18. So they already know what he thought about it and what he taught. So it's not really seeking to find an answer. It's calculated. 
So what they're trying to do here is to provoke him to say something very narrow-minded, in their view, that would alienate him from the people. Perhaps some of those listening had already been divorced, and he, you know, if he responds saying that they were all a bunch of adulterers, then he's going to lose popularity with the people, and, and his following would diminish, and they would want him to teach contrary to what they thought Moses had taught, and they wanted to show him to be intolerant and legalistic, and, and so with this question, they wanted to discredit him or destroy him, okay? And it's very much the same type of relationship, uh, antagonist-protagonist relationship that comes now, doesn't it? When you begin to get into a conversation with someone about moral lifestyle, and what the Lord has described, and so very much the same. Now, how could they destroy him, you might wonder. Well, remember, Jesus is in the region of Perea, and this is where Herod Antipas lives, and this is the region, uh, there was a fortress there with a prison, and one of the prisoners there had been John the Baptist. Now, all this is recorded for us in Matthew 14.3, and you can turn there and just listen to the story. In Matthew 14.3, here's what we see. For Herod had laid hold of John and bound him and put him in prison. Why did he do that? For the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Now, that statement is important, and here's why. Do you know who Herodias was? And I've told you before, you probably remember, daughter of uh, Aristobulus, another one of Herod the Great's sons. So, Philip and Herod Antipas were her uncles. So, Herodias has married uh, her uncle, Herod Antipas. That's kind of creepy, but that's just how it is, okay? And that was how it was in, in the ruling class. It's not that, I mean, we're not that far separated in Europe from very things just like that. So, anyway, it's creepy, but here's what, that's what happened. Married her uncle, and, uh, and then it gets even creepier because the Bible says that she was his brother Philip's wife because she used to be his brother Philip's wife until Herod Antipas seduced her and talked her into leaving Philip and marrying him. So it gets even creepier by a factor of 10. So God in his word doesn't recognize adulterous unions and call them married. So he just says, why do you have your brother Philip's wife? That's not your wife, it's your brother Philip's wife. And so Matthew 14, 3, Herodias was with his brother Philip's wife. It's saying that in the eyes of God, that's the way it should still be, because that's how it was set up. Herod Antipas has stolen his own brother's wife, and he's married her, and so it was an adulterous relationship, and the Bible doesn't recognize that, and, and the way that ties with Jesus' teaching on divorce is this. In the next verse, verse 4, here's what it says. Because John had said to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And so in this area of Perea, John is there, he he confronts Herod Antipas and says, look, you have your brother Philip's wife. It's not lawful for you to have her. You're in, a, you're in an adulterous relationship. And so because of that, John is grabbed. He's put in prison because he spoke up about a divorce, about divorce and about remarriage and adultery. And so he told Herod Antipas and, and Herodias that it wasn't lawful to do what they had done. And John was killed for it. Now, go fast forward to Jesus. Here he is. He's in the same region. And they're asking him about the same topic hoping he'll offend Herod Antipas and is going to meet with the same fate. And so the Pharisees want to undermine his relationship with the people. They want to see him killed. And this is not some coincidental question in the location where Jesus is teaching. So here's his reply. It's so amazing. Look at Matthew 19.4 in your copy of God's Word. It's very insightful. Jesus comments to them. Okay? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Verse 5, And said... For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Verse 6. So then, they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, Jesus didn't answer their question in the way that we're expecting. And I would propose to you, beloved, that you have these types of comments at your disposal. It may be divorce and remarriage. It may be a homosexual union. It may be transvestism. Whatever it is, 
The same answer applies. Do you catch it? Here's what it is. I'm not going to get in an argument about whether you think this is right or whether you think you have strong feelings or whether love is better than hate or whatever, okay? I'm not getting an argument about whether you think it's Caitlin or Bruce. What I'm saying is, Jesus says, haven't you read at the beginning? God made a male and he made a female. And the physiological differences are obvious. And he put them together. Now, if you think about somebody like God and he's creating the world and he's making people, I mean, he could have done whatever he wanted, right? I mean, that's the reality of it. Couldn't he have said, okay, I'm going to make 10 people work it out? I'm going to make two, two women and one man, or I'll make two men and two women, and you just pair up however you want? I mean, he could have said whatever he wanted, right? I mean, if it doesn't work out, just try somebody else. That's not what he said, right? He said at the beginning, listen, I'm not going to answer your question about divorce and remarriage right now. What I'm going to say is, remember way back then? That's how God did it. One man for one woman, and the two become one flesh. And that, I think that's significant. He goes back past the rabbis, he goes back past the customs, he goes all the way back past all the tradition, and he goes all the way back to the beginning, he goes to God himself, right? That's where he goes, back to the beginning. And so he says to them, let's see what God intended, what was his plan? And you know what? That really puts everything in perspective, see? He's telling him, the argument that you have isn't with me, see? The argument you have was not with John the Baptist. The argument you have is not with the teachings that you've heard taught over and over of old. Your argument is with the Lord. Genesis 127, Genesis 2.24, that's where he's referring to, have you not read? He says to the ones who read all the time, the Pharisees, the ones who think they know so much about the word, and they think they're so clever, it's really a slap in the face to them. Haven't you read this? And then he gives them the basics from the beginning on why God did not intend for divorce. He gives them really three reasons. Number one, here it is. One man was created for one woman. That's what God said at the beginning. One man, one woman created for each other. Marriage is God's word. Marriage is God's situation. Marriage is made up by the Lord. He told us exactly what to do with it. It applies to everybody. Marriage in a jungle in, in Papua New Guinea and marriage in New York City or wherever it is, is still God's creation. One man, one woman, to become one flesh. Okay? And Jesus quotes, Jesus quotes Genesis 1.27. He says this, And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female. And so he's addressing the Pharisees. He says, you know, haven't you read about creation, guys? I mean, remember what it says there? God created Adam. God created Eve. He didn't create Adam and Eve and Miriam and Joseph, he, you know, just in case. You know, the whole idea, you didn't create Adam and Steve and say, you know, hey, I hope this works out for you or whatever. It's fairly simple, okay? He, God didn't create three people or five people or 12 people and say, you know, try it and work it out. You know, try somebody else. He just created two. There weren't any extras, no other selection, no substitutes. That was God's intent from the very beginning, see? That's the first principle. A very obvious one, it would seem. If you look at all the options someone like God could have had in the initial creation, he could have done whatever he wanted. This is what he wanted to do. Just made one man for one woman. That's a divine plan. No alternatives. He didn't make provision for divorce. And for that matter, he didn't make any provision for polygamy or homosexuality by making any spare people, okay? I, I mean, divorce wasn't really prudent for Adam and Eve, right? I mean, be pretty lonely in the garden, and you're bound to bump into each other every now and then. It's going to be awkward. You're only two people on the face of the earth, right? You think it's awkward with your ex now. I mean, imagine if you're the only two in the garden. It's like, no, you got, you got to move. I mean, and I make fun of that, but I mean, I, mean, I, think, that, I think that's Jesus' point. It's like, haven't you... 
read what happened at the beginning? I mean, you're asking questions about something that's not related to reality. Here's the reality. Here's God's point. Okay, so God had a lot of options, but he, um, that wasn't one of them or any of the other things I just mentioned. Everything would have come to a close right there. Adam and Steve, that's it. When they die, it's all done. Adam and Eve, they get a divorce. I mean, you're, you're running out of time here, guys. You're living 900 years, so it's going to be awkward for a long time, but it's still going to be over eventually. So there's, there's not an option other than the one that he, God gave. And that's the simple point Jesus wants them to see. Adam and Eve had one choice, and that was it. In the case of Adam and Eve, divorce was wrong. Not only that, it wasn't prudent, it wasn't possible, and that's how God intended for it to be. If it isn't the two of you, there isn't anything. God's intentional creation. Compulsory, unbreakable, permanent, indissoluble union. One man, one woman. And by doing that, God sets the pattern for the entire human race throughout history. That's Jesus' point. You fast forward, you know, 2,500 years, and you're at Jesus' time, and you have him saying the exact same thing. And it doesn't matter how advanced the culture gets. It's still exactly the same. What did God do? This is what he did. One man, one woman, no alternative for all the human race, for all history. And just because the human population grew and produced lots of different alternatives, and the Corinthian church in the Roman culture was exercising a lot of different sinful alternatives, it didn't make any difference. Jesus is making it very clear. That didn't change God's original plan. Jesus says it's obvious by God's original creation what he intended. There's another reason why divorce is not permitted for just any reason. We're going to have to stop with this one. Unfortunately, we'll get back to it next week. Number two, it's a powerful link, a powerful link. When God put them together, he brought them out and put them together. He made it obvious. And Jesus is just drawing on Genesis 2.24 when he says in Matthew 19.5, he says, for this reason, that's the union of one man for one woman, by the way, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined or cleave, you may have, to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. And this really has two component parts as you think about this powerful link. The first is he breaks the relationship in the man's home. He leaves and he takes a wife and he cleaves to her. And this is God's plan. And that's the word cleave or join. That's very important. It's the same word that's used for glue. The idea is to be stuck together. The Message Bible translates it very well. He does this. Uh, it says, because of this, a man leaves father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife. That's the idea. And that's the idea of the word, a permanent searing together. It also has the idea of following hard after something. So two big magnets kind of, you know, as they, as they connect to each other, very hard to pry them apart. That kind of thing is the idea. Setting two pieces of wood together to be laminated together, bonded, glued together. Once they're joined, you work with it as one piece. That's the idea expressed here. It's a powerful link. It's a powerful bond. I'm wrapped up in her. She's wrapped up in me. Exchange of selves. And that really connects us to our study in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, which we just read a little bit ago, where it says, the wife doesn't have authority over her own body, the husband does, and likewise the husband does not have authority over his body, but the wife does. Why is that? Well, because they've become one, haven't they? And that's that understood knowledge as Paul brings that to their attention. Listen, I'm going to tell you this again, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 4, but you should already understand this, that there is a powerful link there, and you don't have control over your own self because you're one now. So the picture Jesus is pointing out to these guys is obvious. God intended it to be a permanent bonding, one to the other, one man for one female, no options, no alternatives, powerful link, a bonding together, a gluing, a following hard after, an unbreakable union, or a joining. However you want to describe that, that's what it looks like. And the second component part, and I'll finish with this, of this powerful link is this part. Verse 5, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined or cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
then they are no longer two, but one. Now, we spent a lot of time two weeks ago really talking about that one flesh relationship as Paul spoke to the church in 1 Corinthians 6. And so we understand that, so I won't go through all that background again because I think you connect with it. But here again, we understand that that's God's original teaching from the beginning. Paul assumes their knowledge of this. So that's why he asked those questions. Don't you know when you do this, you become one flesh with her? I mean, they understand the one flesh concept because there's already groundwork laid when Paul was there. So verse 6, when he says they're no longer two but one flesh, he simply means you can't divide one. They're not two anymore. And so he wants these Pharisees to know in this area of Perea, listen, your argument's not with me. The fact of the matter is, this is how God set it up. So understand what those words mean. They become one person through the union of marriage. And by wording it, we get to see in some ways how God sees what we look like. How scripture does that occasionally is so amazing. You know, with Israel, with salvation, and here God does it with marriage. God sees one person. Uh, they abandon themselves to each other. They become the total possession of each other. Feelings and will and direction and spirit and the mind, all this oneness, it's really great. And, and, and in intangible form, as we've said before, the image of that uh, one relationship becomes a child that they produce. In a very real sense, that is the mix of the two. And that perfect reality and illustration in the face of that child. The child bears all that they are as one. God sees it immediately. So if you've got to have children uh, with your marriage partner, then you get to see what God saw them when you made your commitment to one another to become one flesh. From the beginning, God's plan. You can't talk about splitting up two people in a divorce because they're one, and that was God's plan from the start. And we're going to stop right there, even though there's lots of more to go, and uh, we'll give you updated notes next week so we can pick up right there. Thank you for bearing with me, beloved, on these things. I think that they're important, and again, so relevant as the Lord just opens up his word and makes it so clear. But I think the point that I want to get across today, even though I'm laying some groundwork for 1 Corinthians 7, is that the same dialogue is still available to you. And I know it sounds in your mind, as you think about talking to somebody who doesn't hold for a Judeo-Christian ethic, that sounds ridiculous. Yes. Well, it sounded ridiculous only a couple chapters after Genesis chapter 1. Because people started messing it all up right away, didn't they? And God's plan wasn't followed and multiple wives and homosexuality and all the kinds of stuff that began to occur right away, right? And so understand that it's, even though we fast-forwarded into a, a whole different culture, men and women are the same. And so we want to start where God's Word starts. We want to use what God's Word says, not get into a reasoning, you know, a figure, let me, let me appeal to your intellect, or whatever it is. These are spiritual issues, beloved. They are at the very heart of men. Rebellion and sin at the heart of every unredeemed person. And it just manifests itself in a bunch of different ways, but you can still say the exact same thing that Jesus said. And that will be somewhat offensive, but it's for their good, isn't it? And what are you going to do, offend them into hell? That's where they're headed, beloved, if they're not born again already. And if they are born again and deceived, all you're doing is helping them avoid exactly what Jesus said to avoid, which is this diminishing of, their, uh, of the reward that they have as they come to heaven because they're going to be considered least for minimizing a very important uh, command from the Lord that is universal to all. Okay? So that's our application for today. I hope it's helpful. I hope it encourages you as you live and occupy in this kingdom that is just a temporary kingdom. We wait for the true king who's going to come and all the names given back to the right people. And we, we rejoice in that day. But in the meantime, we're salt, we're light. We, we do the things we need to do in order to make sure the truth is heard to help people avoid the sorrow and the destruction that comes from blatant open sin against the Lord who established all the rules of this universe. All right? Let's bow and be dismissed in prayer. Lord, we thank you today for an opportunity to be in your word. We thank you for its relevance. We even thank you for the time we live in, for we know it ushers in 
the rapture and the tribulation. And we look forward to being with you. We, we desire very much to no longer be occupiers, but instead to be with you waiting for uh, the summation of all things, waiting for uh, the kingdom to be turned over to the rightful king. And Father, in the meantime, we, we are grieved by the sin of our own nation. And that really be, should be, Father, and help it to be our first reaction, a grieving. Even though we were, we're angry about it, even though we feel like we've been betrayed, even though we feel like it's out of control, things are out of control, and a government that we felt was representative of the people we see is really not and hasn't been for so long, our first reaction, Father, help it to be grieving, because that's how you look at it, too. You're grieved when men sin. As, you, as your son stood and looked upon uh, Israel so often, you desired to gather them up because they were just lost without a shepherd. They uh, didn't understand. And, Father, that's where we are. So, Father, what a great opportunity it is as we wait for your, uh, your son to come to be faithful to continue to give out the exact same message we've always been giving out. Help us to be clear. Help us to be bold. Help us to know our, our, our speech with grace, seasoned with salt, and not offensive, not condemnation, but instead clear reality of what the situation really is, what God originally created, and why he did that. And Lord, as you give us opportunity to be a witness, help us to be faithful. And Father, I pray that you give us fruit from this witness. I pray that it'll be a time when maybe some who are in the church uh, abroad or here in the U.S. wake up and know that the time is short and the day is at hand and do the work that we need to be doing. Be found faithful servants as the master returns. And we give you praise today for these opportunities. And we say this in the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen.